the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, writer, comedian, Abby Jacobson. In 2014, Abby created Broad City with friend and collaborator, Alana Glazer. The program revolved around two women in their 20s trying to make it in New York City. To much acclaim, it ran for five seasons on Comedy Central. When it ended in 2019, the show's cult following was distressed. They wanted more Abby and Alana. But the show was always about two friends in their 20s. And as Jacobson and Glazer entered their 30s, it no longer felt right to keep going. That chapter had closed, on the screen, and off. And so, in the years since, Jacobson has been writing, acting, and ultimately searching for a new story to tell. After some persistence, a little bit of patience, and a whole lot of hard work, she's returned with a new show on Amazon called A League of Their Own. It's a reimagining of the hit 1992 film of the same name, starring Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, and Madonna. With World War II as the backdrop, the show charts the creation of a women's professional baseball team in Rockford, Illinois. Here's a clip from the trailer. Hey, you! You're clearly going to tryouts. She doesn't look like that much competition. I could be competition, I think. We're here for the tryouts. I don't think you understand. This is the All-American League. We're pretty All-American. 
Who was that? They didn't even let me try out, Dad. Maxine, you've got to make some smarter choices. This is fine. Peaches, I'd like to go through a few rules. Curfew is at 10 p.m. sharp. No smoking or drinking, no pants. What? I'm a pitcher, and you need me. Is that so? Everybody on the team has to have a job at the factory. So any job? Max, can you lift 50 pounds? And are you willing to get the shit burn out of your hands? Yes, and I guess so. Great. You want the game to be more exciting? Shorten the skirts. So what if right here, right now, we forget the rules? They don't get to decide if this is real or not. We do. Let's go! Things are changing pretty fast. Hey, Dollface. You can now stream all eight episodes of A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime. The show, like the film, is set in 1943. But that's about where the similarities between the two end. Abby's focus, alongside co-creator Will Graham, was to explore the role of queerness, race, and gender in the story. You'll hear a whole lot more about that in the beginning of our talk. We also discuss her early comedic influences, striking out in New York after college, her years at UCB, the whirlwind of Broad City, a cross-country road trip fueled by heartbreak, and a whole lot more. Throughout this conversation, I reference a memoir Abby wrote in 2018 called I Might Regret This. I don't believe we ever mention the title of the book. Sometimes we just call it that or that thing. But it is indeed a book and it is one worth reading. You can find I Might Regret This wherever you get your books. And now, here is Abby Jacobson. Abby Jacobson. Yeah. How you feeling? I feel good. Just... I do feel nervous. <laughs> Why is that? I love this podcast. And I think you're one of the best interviewers. And that makes you nervous. Kind of to be the one being interviewed. Yeah, a little bit. Is this how you thought it would go? It's a really nice space. Yeah. I hadn't like visualized it. I like the setting. Mm-hmm. I like this. The, we have wine. Beautiful. Yeah, we're doing a late night talk easy. This is the The new category. I I would be happy to do this at any time. I'm very happy to be here. Where to begin? You have this new show called A League of Their Own. It's less of a recreation of the 1992 movie and more of a reimagining of the story. As you say, opening up the lens of women in the 1940s who wanted to play baseball. So why don't we start here? Why did you want to tell this story in 2022? So I loved this film. It was one of those films. It was probably like that and The the Mighty Ducks and Sister Act. The trifecta. Yeah. Yeah. Where I was like, I see something in here. That is me. (laughs) This is like mind blowing in whatever way. And I was still making Broad City when Will Graham, who's the co-creator with me, asked me. We were just acquaintances. First time we went to dinner and he asked me if I wanted to do this with him. We're in New York and I was in season four of Broad City and I we were not like ending it necessarily yet. And I was like, 
I don't know like if I can manage both of these, but yes, I must. I think that first conversation really defines why we wanted to do this, which is the film is over here and will forever be over here as one of the like 90s classics that people love. It's so nostalgic and so much of the spirit and the joy of that film holds true when you watch it now. And can't be remade. No, can't be. And we, and we were never trying to be like, let's redo that. And so while, you know, the spirit and the joy I just spoke of, like that's the thing we're really trying to do in ours as well. But Penny Marshall had limitations in 92 when she was making it. And like what? Like what kind of stories you can tell? Listen, we're still up against it now. But I think we're able to tell a much wider scope of different kinds of stories right now. And so that's why Will and I really wanted to dive into the stories that were missing in the movie. And so that ends up being a lot of characters that were not featured in the film. Like the film really focuses on this one league, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which is where the peaches are and was a door that opened for some women, all white women or white passing women straight-seeming women. And our show is really diving into a lot of different kinds of women. So that happens to be queer women, that happens to be Black women, that happens to be Latinx women, that happens... I just think that was like a, a big intention of like really showing a range of women in the 1940s that the two-hour film couldn't do in that two-hour real estate. Hopefully we'll get to do more, but... Yeah, I think it was really exciting. Like, you know, we got a chance to talk to Penny Marshall before she died, which is like... What did her voice sound like? Oh, my God. I was like, um... Oh. <laughs> kind of like in a micro. Oh, well, I was trying to do... Trying to tell a story of them. these women. I couldn't do everything. She kind of talked a little bit about that because we had been developing the show. You know, we pitched the show in 2017, so this has been a pretty long process. You know, we always sort of had these two worlds and the hinge of the show. So the character I play, Carson, and the character that Shante Adams plays, Max. The pilot is the biggest homage to the film. And it's sort of those worlds are defined by the scene in the film where there's a foul ball and a black woman picks up the foul ball and chucks it back to Gina Davis. And she doesn't say anything, but like, you know, like that was a hard throw and that woman is really good and is not allowed to be in this space because she's black. And then nothing. That's the one bit that you get of why there's only white women on the team. And we asked Penny about that. And that's when she said, you know, I was really trying to tell this story about this league. And that was my opportunity to nod to some of the flaws of the league. And we really wanted to not just nod to all those things. You know, I think the film is somehow this like iconic queer film as well. And mm -hmm. there's like no one queer. But, you know, we really wanted to focus on those characters that were not in the film. You said in a recent interview, there are two hands in the show. The one we're used to seeing, the white woman who wants to play baseball. And the other is Max, played by Shante Adams. When Will came to you in 2017 and pitched the show at dinner, were you initially interested because of the Black and queer stories you could tell in the modern age? We didn't specifically say that at dinner. 
I think it was more recognizing that that film was really just so white. And that film felt very exclusionary in that way. And like, what about the other stories? Mm -hmm. And that was like the beginning of like, if we're going to do this, we're going to go in all the other directions. And then the more research we did, and we we had full-time researchers, that's so not my wheelhouse. Like, believe it or not, Broad City, we did not have a researcher on staff the whole time. You didn't have someone researching... <laughs> How to properly smoke a joint on screen? It was, listen, it was one of the hats I wore. Uh, so <laughs> many hats I wore. You, you took that for the team. You did, <laughs> I did. I, you did some self free research. Labor. Yeah. Comedy Central didn't want to pay for the research? They did not. And you can leave that in. Oh, the editors are just marking this. <laughs> They're bowling this. I think this is actually, this is a social breakout yeah, clip right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's going to be, this is tweetable. <laughs> they did not pay me. <laughs> no, the, you know, there's so many stories and so many important stories that, you know, I felt very honored to be telling them, but like a great responsibility to try our best to really tell what their lives would have been like. And so our researchers like brought materials and it's like sort of researching all aspects of life at the time. So it was like to be a woman, it was like to be a black woman, it was what it was like to be a Mexican-American woman, and then like trying to play baseball and then the war. And then there's just like endless things. And so the more we started researching, the more that started to define the stories we wanted to tell. One of the women that was an influence for you, her name is Mabel Blair. She's 95 years old. She was a gay woman at the time. Closeted. Closeted. Yeah, yeah. Was that an influence for your character? Mabel was a very broad influence in a lot of the queer characters on the show, mm -hmm. That especially in the league. But also just in sort of what it was like to be queer at the time. And, and her story is a little bit later than we were in 1943 in the, in the beginning of the story. And so talking to Mabel, I mean, and I can tell her story now because a month ago at our screening at Tribeca, we're doing a panel after, and she sits there and publicly came out for the first time at 95. Which was like unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm I have chills right now. It was it was unbelievable. It was a really special night. And she'd come out to us, but that experience of hers was very private to us. So she's been a consultant on this show, but like we were very careful to share whose inside look into that world mm -hmm. we were using. I understand. And we're using a lot of other historical references to showcase what it was like to be closeted and like the spaces that were safe and not. For her, you know, finding the league was probably the first time where she, and she said this, was the first time where she was like, I'm not the only one. And it was this little bubble where she found other queer women and then would go and go to like gay bars and be like, it's not even just us. It's like the world is way bigger than what I thought. And Carson, the character I play, is married to a man and has been for a long time, her sort of childhood sweetheart, who she loves, and finds herself at, in this league and is sort of like cracked open by this person she meets. And the world is revealed to be way bigger in the same way that I think it was for Mabel. So like that feeling and that experience is very much Carson's. I mean, I think that's like the arc of my character in this season is really knowing who she is in a way bigger way. 
I think that Max's character that Shante Adams plays, I mean, she's based on three women who, Tony Stone, Mamie Johnson, and Connie Morgan, who were not allowed to try out in this league and ended up playing in the Negro Leagues with men, which is a story I did not know until like right around when Will and I were talking about this. And how do we not know that? You've done such a good job telling other people's stories in this show. And since you know our show so well, you know that we have to try to tell your story now. Oh. I know. Okay. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Are you bummed out? I'm going to, no, we'll see what happens. I'm going to just keep sipping my wine. Okay. So growing up in Wayne, Pennsylvania, <laughs> <laughs> I want to pinpoint the first comedic bit that you took part in. And I believe it had to do with your grandfather, Harry. Oh, yeah. So in my family, we call our, we called our, grand, not, none of my grandparents are alive anymore, but we called them Mama and Pup-Up. So my Pup-Up Jack and my Pup-Up Harry, they were both really funny. And I do think a lot of my sense of humor comes from the two of them. My Pup-Up Harry was always about like pranks and he would like, I think you're referring to this story where we would go down the shore, which is what Philly people call the South Jersey Shore, kind of around Atlantic City area. And so we had just eaten dinner and he like pulled me into the kitchen. And he was like, okay, we have dessert. I'm going to smash your face into it. And that was like just something like we would just do that publicly, ruin dessert. What was the dessert? Oh, man, it was some pie with whipped cream on it. But it was, I feel like we would do that a lot. Like the willingness to ruin it, like no one's eating that. Of course For not. the laugh sort of ingrained in me like the laugh is important. More important. More important. Than the food. Yeah, and I feel like I was probably like four or five. It was like early on just sort of like that that joy, that getting that reaction is worth ruining dessert. Like we'll find something else, you know, for everybody. And then like my other grandfather was just like the funniest guy. I don't know if you, my pop-up Jack, like do you remember in the 90s, guys would wear their jeans like super low and like show their boxers. Did that end in the 90s? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of coming back around. But like it was very like low hanging jeans and like, I don't know, like my brother was doing it. And so like, I just remember my grandfather just walking like nonchalantly like that just to like fuck with my brother who thought he was like the coolest. I don't know. It was like so subtle things. This little like, what could we do to get them? Mm-hmm was how I felt with my grandparents a little bit. Well, it's funny. You mentioned your brother. You made a bet with him at age 10 that by the time you were 20, you'd be on SNL. Yeah, I did. And I'm not saying that you owe him money, but I think you owe him money. I owe him $100. Okay. I was really into SNL. It was on reruns on Comedy Central. Mm -hmm. Comedy Central was also like a very popular channel in my household, which is like so cool later in my life. And But you were so obsessed with it that you started writing a letter. What did 10-year-old Abby write in the letter to the head of SNL? <laughs> it was like, not aggressive, but kind of... Um, Aggressive's good. A little aggressive. It was like, you better watch out because I'm going to be... <laughs> but like as a kid, it was more like, you better watch out because I'm coming. But in text, it could read like, you better watch out because I'm going to fucking come through that door. Like it, like it could have read definitely. You got to be aggressive. How else were you going to get I on know, the show? I know. And I was very, I was definitely more confident then than I think I 
am now. Like really? I, I, I think my confidence, which I was talking about this today, I can be super confident. And I think you have to have a certain level of confidence to like do this stuff. But then there's like such cycles of doubt and insecurity. Whereas that 10-year-old was sort of watching that show just so in awe of the characters and feeling like, well, I'm going to write him a letter and let him know that by the time I'm 20, I'm going to be on that show. I was just really into it. I was mostly into the first couple seasons. Gilda was my girl. Like I would, I would really watch those early days. But actually the person that was most significant was Mike Myers for a long time. I believe um, you liked Mike Myers so much that in eighth grade, as a student council representative, <laughs> yeah, you reported the monthly issues doing a Mike Myers character. Yeah. This, the floor is yours. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so long. Uh, hello and welcome to Coffee Talk. My name is Linda Richmond. I'm here with uh, Sammy F. Talking on the talk easy. We don't have coffee. We have wine. Talk amongst yourselves. I have not done that in a really long time. How do you feel? Only for you, but I'm like, I gotta tell you, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I, you know, I... I'm honored that you would do it. I can't believe I did it. For this show. Of course. I also like needed to prove that I could. So I was like student council representative for my homeroom, which means like once a month you go to the meetings, they tell you what's going on in school and you come back and you tell the class. And I, again, like, I hadn't ever really performed. I was like, I was an athlete as a kid. I played like every sport my older brother played, but I kind of had this itch of like, that's what I wanted to do. And so I did coffee talk to tell them that there was like a dance on Sunday <laughs> and they ate it up. Of and course. I think getting the reaction from the adults, you can tell if it's fake. I think it was where I was like, this is working. Mm -hmm. Like I can get the laughs that I'm like where I wrote the laughs I got, which was so new to me. And I would do that every month. And then I we like went on a field trip and I did it at this campfire there. But I, I don't think that growing up, I was ever the kid that you would be like, she's gonna be an actor. <laughs> like, except for that little piece. Except that's exactly what you wanted to be. And that confidence, it didn't get you on SNL, but it did bring you to New York in August of 2006. And in that first week, wanting <laughs> to be an actor, yeah, you find yourself at the Atlantic Theater Conservatory. Yeah. How did you feel about those classes? Yeah, so I went to undergrad at this school called Micah in Baltimore, which is fine art, which is hilarious, like, to be a fine artist is not an easier route than doing this. But I was, it's so, it's more tangible. Like I could draw and I, you can see, like I can draw and no one I knew does this or did, this is just like, what are you doing? By this, you mean acting? Acting, writing, like any film, TV, like that is just sort of like this wild dream. Like I just didn't know anyone that went and did that as a career. And so while I was in Micah, I minored in video, which allowed me to like experiment with characters and things like that. And I sort of realized that I'd always thought about being an actor and never really allowed myself to do it. And then so when I was graduating, I applied to Atlantic. It was dramatic conservatory and it was legit. And I auditioned and got in to your program, moved to New York, 
dream. I mean, I worked at the anthropology at Rockefeller Center, still holding out, which is where SNL is. It sucked ass. <laughs> it's just not how my brain works. It really is interesting to think about how people learn and process and can feel confident. And that place for me was like the stripping away of all those things. How did you know that it wasn't for you? I think a lot of people have different opinions about art school. I feel very privileged that I got to go to a place that was like all about exploration. And it felt like a space that was very improvisational and, and open. And this was like so closed and like looking at a sentence of dialogue, analyze, like it was like this deep micro analysis. My brain like just shut off. It was like turning off the blinds and I couldn't function in the classes. And it was devastating. I was like, moved to New York. Everyone knew I was doing this. And I had like this breakdown because I would lose my deposit if I didn't make the choice quickly to quit. So you're on the northeast corner of 15th Street and 8th Avenue. Yeah. Kind of mental breakdown. I'm fully crying, which if you've ever been to New York, there's you've seen someone doing that. I've been someone (laughs) doing that. Yeah. I think anyone that has lived in New York has had that. And I I think it was just like, I'm the first person in my family to like leave Philadelphia. And I felt like I was like going after this big thing. And then I'm like, I can't do it. When you look at that 22 year old that moved there with huge dreams and rose colored glasses, and within a week had to redefine what they wanted. What do you see? My first thought is I'm so happy that that happened and that that 22-year-old went through that and had to then, like, slosh through the messiness. And I've thought about that quite a bit because, I mean, that's fully what Broad City's about. That feeling of moving there, that specific city, and what the highs and lows feel like there was so much about what we were trying to do on Broad City. And like, I feel like I would never have known it at the time where I was like so devastated with that was a big failure. And like, but all the little mini ones and all the little mini wins, I didn't know at the time that that was sort of building this inventory for me. Like, I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer then. So I want to figure out how you got to making Broad City. Because after that happens, you're in a kind of depressed daze in what you've called the quickly quitting my dreams movement of 2006. And in that, a roommate of yours suggests that you go to UCB and watch a show. Yeah. When the lights go down and you're sitting there by yourself, what happens in that experience? Yeah, my roommate Jess, who I had gone to MICA with, to undergrad with. So I had done video work at MICA and I was like really scrambling, just like, what am I doing here? And we were at home and she was like, I really, have you ever heard of the Upright Citizens Brigade? And I had not, like, I didn't know the show. She was like, I just really think you'd like it based on your videos at school, which were just character studies kind of, but projected on gallery walls, which is kind of hilarious to me now. And so I went and I went alone and I was fully blown away by what was going on. It was just like, you know, six, seven people on stage just playing. You could feel how much fun they were having and like how smart and quick and the energy in the room was palpable. 
And from that point on, I was, I had, I had signed up for the Atlantic part-time program after I quit to like hang on. And it was torturous. It was such a good part-time thing. And I was like, let this end. And from that time on, I signed up for all the classes I could afford. I was obsessed with going there and getting to be one of those people that got to perform on that stage. It's so dorky. <laughs> but I will say, anyone that you talk to about that place, I think, taps into this because it is a little cultish. You are kind of fully in or mm -hmm. not. It made me think differently. After being at the Atlantic, which where I felt so small and like numb, I don't know if I'd ever felt like so not myself or unable to speak or express. And then I walk into a place that is all about learning this muscle to be able to not think and trust other people and rely on other people and like play and collaborate. Like so many of those pillars of improv I feel like I use now. So I'm happily a dork about it. It was in improv that you finally felt alive in some way. Yeah, and it sort of was how I felt in my uh, homeroom. I mean, listen, I was very insecure at UCB, but I knew it was in there. And it was just about getting past that fear because it is also very scary. There's no script. You're like walking out and all you have is like you're listening to somebody and like trying to find the game of the scene and you need confidence like the audience like reads it when there's not and mm. so it's like I found it there but it's also where you found Alana right I didn't find her at UCB but in improvising in, in improvising you you kind of had to create a practice team and we would perform at like little theaters all around town because you like all you want is to get on UCB stage but very difficult so I showed up to this practice team and there was this new girl and her brother. And I fully thought that Alana was maybe from Arrested Development, Alia Shawkat, and I didn't know her name. So I was like, yeah, it's, it's Alana. Like Alana Glazer plays maybe. And then we went to a bar, we went to McManus, which is like an Irish pub that everybody went to from the theater. And we were talking more and it became really clear. I was like, this is not her. I was going to ask you to dive... <laughs> more into that scene, but you've done such a good job describing it in this book that I thought maybe you'd want to read it. Oh, yeah, okay. I haven't read this in a little while. It feels false to look back on a moment, a conversation, and see an inciting incident of your own life's movie, like a formulaic Hollywood script broken down beat by beat in a screenwriting handbook. But those handbooks sell so many copies for a reason. It was right there at the corner of the bar at McManus that my life changed completely. Alana was so refreshing, this brassy girl with big opinions, bold, animated, and who seemed to know exactly who she was. And me, shy and insecure, pulling awkwardly at my clothes, outgoing only after a few drinks. There was a spark, a dynamic between us I had never experienced with another person like she could see my potential self sitting at the bar and I hers. Oh, man. I'm not going to let myself be emotional while reading. You're allowed to be emotional in here. I know. I will. I'll let myself. You're saving that for the back half? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> now that I have that permission, uh, oh, here we go. Please. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Abby's like, I've listened to a lot of episodes. It usually happens later on. Yeah, yeah. It usually happens later on. 
I think it's so rare to meet someone and know that this person is going to, one, be in your life. I really felt that way about her. And I had never met anyone like her. Once I, I mean, also was like, this is not the person on the TV show. And we just started talking and it was just someone who was so, as I, right in there, just like felt like they knew who they were. Or even if they didn't know who they were, they were okay presently expressing who they were right then and there. And I was not. Why? I don't know. I think I just didn't know where I was going or I didn't feel like steady in really anything. I think I was so excited. It was a very exciting time. The energy of finding a community. That again is like also like how often does that happen? Not a lot where you you walk into this new space in your life and you're like, I want to be a part of this. And they're like welcoming me in. And it's full of people that are like me in this way, that are dorking out about yes anding. I don't know. I just was like, this is so different than any of my friends from home, any of my friends from college, which are different communities. But this felt like where I wanted to go. And I don't know. It's like really feels like a very special time in my life. So it's with all of that anxiety, that kind of rudderlessness, that you come to a pizza place on 30th and 7th Avenue where the two of you devise a plan to make what would become Broad City. How did you describe, you're smiling at me as I'm saying this. I know, because I love it. You know that, yeah. Well, I'm also like, right, I haven't, I haven't talked about this in a second. It's like a warming mm. part of my life, so. How did you two describe the show to each other in that pizza parlor? Yeah, I think both of us were, this was 2009, yeah. We were so frustrated at the time, you know, just doing improv. Alana was doing a lot of stand-up and I was doing more characters and just like trying to perform, trying to get on on stage at UCB and the teams and what you think the journey to like do anything in this industry is, is to like get on that stage. I think we were just like falling short, like couldn't find the groove that would make the machine run. But Alana and I we just really cracked each other up and were really similar in a lot of ways and then really different, like a Venn diagram. What's in the middle of that? I think in the middle is like a lot of our core stuff. Like we both grew up with older brothers. Our parents were like so supportive of us. Jewish, even though Alana like from the show, her not believing I'm Jewish is like was just from reality. I think it is also like that's a similarity and a difference because we're very different kinds of Jews. And I think the similarity was the yearning to do this. Like we both early on figured out that laugh, that if you get the laugh, that's worth it. I think early on she, I mean, it was more her and her brother versus like me and my grandfather or whatever, but like I think she was exposed really early to like what it feels like when you can make someone laugh. And we just really clicked on that. And the differences were, there's anxiety in both places. Mine was like outward. Hers is internal a little bit more. Like all the things that we amplify on the show are sort of the differences. Like the differences, she has this like bravado and this confidence that there's definitely an insecurity and undercurrent, but like the bravado is forefront and almost overcompensates for everything else. Whereas like mine is like, 
I don't know if we have to go. Like, maybe we don't go. Like, I don't have to go out. And <laughs> Alana's like, let's be anxious about it tomorrow, if that makes sense. Like, all the things I kind of wish I could let go of or have tried to take medication for <laughs> are actually the best things when it comes to my creativity. If I'm using myself, they end up being the things that I identify with the character most. So they're okay. Well. No, what are you bringing out why here? Why don't? Sam just pulled out a remote control. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned all this creativity. Why don't we look at the first Broad City sketch that you two filmed? This is called Making Change. I'm not... I don't, I don't know if I want to have a cocktail book, but I couldn't spare at this point. Spare a nickel, spare a quarter, spare a dollar. Oh, I don't have any cash, man. I'm sorry. All right, well, you have a wonderful day. Uh, um, I actually, I have a 10. If you could give me eight back, we're, eight. we're good. Yeah, I have eight. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Yes. Right. Have Thank a good you. day. God bless you. Okay. And this that? is for the bagel. Whoa, Thank you. Alana, what the f are you doing? You just keep... Make cash at the homeless person? I just said thank you for the bagel. And you say, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, you don't do that. That's it. I don't know how you don't say that that's disrespectful, first of all. It isn't disrespectful. I employed him okay, momentarily. That's disrespectful? I don't know. You don't understand that. No, it isn't. Secondly, Abby, that was dignified. I gave him $2. Did you, okay, great. You gave him $2. Did you not hear me say I don't have any cash? No, you give me cash in front of He's watching me right now. <gasps> I have to oh, give, I have he's to watching give to, you. No, you're making me a liar. Cat. A liar. What are you, Christian? Who cares? Come no, on. not Christian. You know, not Christian, but he's seeing me. He's still watching me. You I know, have to get all stressed out you know. about what strangers think of you. What, what does that guy care? You made him a promise, like a. You have guilt that isn't planted in reality. Yeah, you'll have a go. You know, let me do it. Just let me. You did it. Put me in a situation. I'm going to do it. So. Yeah, walk ahead of me. <laughs> I haven't seen that in so long. Wow. These title cards, too. Wow. Blast from the past, man. How do you feel? <laughs> I forgot how we used to be a little bit more antagonistic. So interesting to see. I haven't watched the web series, and a lot of it was taken down because we used whatever music we wanted. And then they, you know, you can't do that. But that kind of moment was what we brainstormed in the pizza shop. I still have this, you know, like the black and white composition notebooks. I still have the one where we wrote all these ideas, which were making change. You know, the other one was like how you can't get <laughs> so dumb. Like, it's just so dumb how this, what I'm about to say is like an idea that was on a whiteboard for so, for years, <laughs> for like six years, was that in New York and a lot of places you can't get eggs after 11. Like, they won't make you an egg sandwich, let's say. And, and you know this because you're asking for eggs for dinner? No, I think you're like, in my earlier days, I'd wake up late and kind of want one at one. Mm -hmm. Can't get it. And like, what's with that? And <laughs> <laughs> listen, now you're going to want one later and you're going to be upset. Oh, I'll be upset anyway. Don't worry about that. But <laughs> No, it was all about like stuff that we had talked about just as our friendship. And we were like, that's, that's one. We're like, this is one. And sometimes it, we got like really heightened and really weird. But it all was kind of stemming from just like this little thing that we were noticing. And like in a way, like a stand-up would talk about like, isn't it crazy? You don't get egg, you know, but ours was. Was that your Seinfeld? That <laughs> it really was. But 
that's in the notebook. And then we use that storyline in like season four of the TV show. I love that that stuff like never changed. Like we evolved, I think, as people. But as like the show, I think if you watch the web version, you're like, oh, this is like the seed or like this is like a little bit. And then you the TV version like expanded a lot. Like an episode is like every episode is a day. But those little moments are still there throughout. That's wild to watch that. Does it feel like a lifetime ago? Yeah. It feels like a lifetime ago. And then also like, I'm so excited about this new show and telling these new stories. And when I watched that, it was like the first time in my life where I was like, this, this is what I want to do. It's a really good reminder because I'm doing what I want to do, but lately in the middle of this big new, it's like massive compared to Broad City. It's just like you get caught up and you get swept up a little bit in this industry. And that is like so simple. It's like a friendship. I will never forget the feeling of us realizing that that could be something. Like Alana and that show is very much like falling in love like very much like my first love in this so it'll always have that for me we'll be right back after a quick break hello hello malcolm gladwell here from revisionist history my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Before the break, you were talking about falling in love with Alana. I just want to go to something here because in 2014, Broad City gets picked up by Comedy Central. Through the first few seasons, you and Alana seem to be breathlessly working to make this show possible. It demands everything of you both. And yet, come season four, I believe you fall in love for the first time. Yeah. And then in the process of falling in love and falling out of it, you find yourself doing a scene in a closet on a soundstage for season four. It was a closet that Alana had like covered in tin foil to act like a sad lamp. What happened that night? In a great way. Like Broad City was very much my life. And I also was so lucky that I, I was working with my best friends, you know, Alana and then Paul W. Downs and Lucia and Yellow and Jen Statsky. It felt so much like a family that I wasn't so much like, where's my balance? Because I was like always with my friends, but there was always this piece of, like I had never been in love. So when that happened, it was incredible as it is for everybody. And it enlivened me and I was still doing the show at the time. And it was like this whole new thing. And then when it ended, I had never experienced heartbreak like that either and it was just like one season after the other like for a while it was like very back to back and I was just really depressed and really numb and really thankful I had the show because I could like snap into Abby like it was like thank god that I have Abby Abrams to be for the day who is like full of energy but when we were not shooting I was just 
really holding it together. I could thrive in the work because I could be somewhere else. And so that night, it was so late. Uh, Lana was working at a restaurant, the closet at the restaurant. We were shooting on a soundstage and I was standing outside. I had to like enter the closet and talk to Alana and I'm standing outside the soundstage and I'm like about to break down. And then they called action and I, listen, I would crumble every night when I went home. It was like really a bad time. I mean, I just said it, but I just was very thankful to have had that alternate version of myself that got to be freaking out about their mom in a restaurant asking them how many men they had sex with. I think that's the episode. You know, I'm like, the stakes of like my life and her life at the time were like just as high, but really about different things, you know? And it was like so, it was like a relief that I like had that show. These things that I've made let me really try to share who I am and what my experience is being a human being. And that, that I, I felt very lucky to have that because it helped me learn who I was and I felt seen. In many ways, it seems like you were using work as a crutch and a life raft, and maybe you needed both. Yeah, definitely. But also, perhaps also an escape from how you felt. And in that escape, knowing yourself as a fourth season wraps in the edit, you decide to do a cross-country expedition and write this book that I'm holding in my hand. I have a passage from it, if that's all right. Oh, yeah, for me to read. Okay. As a certifiable workaholic, I knew the only way I'd be able to get away and process this transformative relationship and the frustration I was still carrying around was if I created a project. So I made a plan. We were scheduled to finish editing on the last day in June, Friday the 13th. And from then on, I had three weeks until I needed to be on the West Coast. I would leave Sunday, July 2nd at the butt crack of dawn and drive across the country to Los Angeles alone. That was what I would do. When my main distraction was set to end, I'd skip town and cook up another. This type of situation was exactly what horizons were there for, to drive right into. That cross-country trip, how do you understand it now? I don't think I wrote about it in the book, but I decided to do the road trip. But in order to do it, I like sold the book because I was like, I have to create a project to then force me to do the thing I know I need to do. And what was that? Like go away and like really have to think about it. Because working that much while I was so devastated was a crutch and a life raft and all those things. But it also was like, it like shoved the processing to like the 3 a.m. hour the sleepless night and not the processing I really needed. And I think a lot of it was also just feeling so late in life, sort of figuring out one's sexuality. But like, I felt really stunted and really, that was also the processing of sort of like, oh, am I overreacting to this? And just, I just needed to be alone. And I'd never driven across the country. I didn't know what else to do. I kind of was like, that's it. Like, what else? I don't know. Mm -hmm. With the destination being Los Angeles at the end of July. Yeah, I was, um, I am a voice on this show, Disenchantment. Mm -hmm. It's Matt, Matt Groening. 
I'd been zooming mm-hmm. for this show, and it was that it was a really big opportunity w- for me to get to work with him. But I had the opportunity to go to LA for a little bit and be in person with Matt. And I was like, I'm going to take this opportunity. And so we had recordings or we had Comic-Con. I had spent a little bit of time in, in LA just pitching Brad City, and that's kind of it. And a lot of my friends had moved out here. So, yeah. There was something you had to be in LA for, and that is a Q&A at the Santa Monica and New Art of the film Person to Person, in which I moderated a conversation between the two of us at the end of July. Wait. Of 2017. Wait. Wait, why have you, you're burying the leaf right now. Hold on a second. <laughs> have, I, I just didn't, didn't associate you with this. It was just us. Was I different? I feel like I was not as, conf, like, that, that really scared me. I also moderated at the New Art Oh, that was so, I was, I'm, I'm very, I'm not comfortable as a moderator yet. I get asked to do it and do it, but I did Janixa and Brett for Lemon and it was terrifying, but I guess I associate that with the new art. Wait, what did, okay. Tell me (laughs) what happened. Did I make a fool of myself? No. (laughs) I love that film. But imagine this, you, after making four seasons of a show, pitch a book to do a cross-country trip because you can't possibly do a cross-country trip without a deadline. Your heart's just been broken for the first time. You make your way to Los Angeles. And at the end of that month, I remember us on stage doing this Q&A. That's wild. That's wild. And despite it all, by the way, you were funny and confident and I do remember some kind of sad. That's interesting. You did feel that? Yeah, but I didn't know what it meant. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like that chunk there. I feel so different. Even if we were to do this, because you were doing this then. If we were to have done this then, I just feel so much more able to talk about myself. I'm like more yearning for more communication and connection with other human beings in an open way but it's just there's a lot I I don't know I can't like put it into words at the end of the book the 2017 version of you wrote a list of things they want for their future self I thought maybe you'd read it and then we can offer a revised version Okay, I'm going to actually preface the this read. So this is a preface is, before the epilogue. It's a preface before the end of it. I don't even think it is the epilogue. It's just a part of it. But it's a preface because it's at the end of a chapter. Called Palm Springs. Called Palm Springs, where I'm watching a woman. Yes, I love this. An older woman swim laps through a very crowded pool of like, young people partying. At the Ace Hotel. At the Ace Hotel. And I'm hanging on one side. Just It's so hot. And I watch this woman with a swim cap and goggles step into this pool and like completely disregard in the most breathtaking way what anyone else is doing in the pool as if it's empty. And this is at the end. (laughs) I sort of equate myself to her because no one seems to notice her swimming through the pool I sort of ruminate on whether or not she's me and I am her. Mm -hmm. And this is, I'm the only one witnessing her. You see some part of yourself 
in her in the swimmer the lone swimmer especially in thinking of yourself as like a 60 year old woman alone yes and i'll just okay so let's just say for a moment she is me I couldn't really see her face with the goggles and the swim cap covering her slash my hair. But let's just think of her as me. I'm the courageous swimmer daring to do laps in the middle of a chaotic world pool. If that is me in 30 years, I hope these things are true. I hope that I'm content that there is an anger within those freestyle strokes. I hope I'm swimming for pleasure and health and not for some societal norm I'm trying to keep up with, like pant size. I hope my life is full of joy full of adventure, full of love. I hope I'm able to share my life with someone, with others. I hope I'm comfortable in that bathing suit. Good ones are hard to find. I hope I like myself, my choices, my gut instincts. I hope I'm a member of the community and take part in making the world I and others live in better. I hope I'm fulfilled creatively. I hope I still have a voice, a platform, a medium in which to express myself. I hope I'm fucking a ton of people or one person, a ton. I hope I don't care what other people think of me. Mm. It's so cool to like revisit the yearning of a younger version of yourself and then find yourself sort of where you'd hoped you'd be. It's a good feeling. Now that you are where you are, what's to yearn for? I mean, I think it's still a lot of the same things, but maybe... I'm yearning to go a little deeper in all the ways. I still do feel like I'm kind of always in the middle of figuring myself out in a different way or sort of feeling a little untethered. And I don't know if that's just sort of part of my programming because it (laughs) seems to never go away. (laughs) But I think leaning into that and sort of accepting that kind of constant untethered feeling and that it might just be part of it for me. And I'm sure a lot of other people feel that way. But I guess I still do have that yearning that Alana and I had. And that is just sort of like, there are things I want to do. And most of them now, and I think they were then, are just like trying to do stuff that feels challenging and new. I'm truly untrained at everything I actually am successful at, maybe except when I But like even the illustrations in that, like my art teachers would be like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like it's like I've gone down to be like, I'm going to show you how I suck at drawing. Mm -hmm. It gets the bare minimum where I guess I'm really interested in what I did in this book. And like any illustrations I've done is like I sort of like showing the flaws. Like I like showing where I messed up. I don't know where I'm going exactly in this thought or generally. And that's okay, But. I feel like because I kind of have this insecurity of not being trained at the things I do professionally, I really rely on my gut. And I feel like that's kind of all I have. And so for as long as someone will let me share that, I'm like, will always kind of be yearning to do that. I wonder, is what you've done and what you continue to do, not just in line with what your grandfather did back in the day. We've started this conversation talking about Harry, who introduced you to the face in the pie bit that started everything. And this was a man who was one of 11 kids, came up in a poor household, 
This is a man who would take day-old newspapers and sell them to people. This was a man who fought, searched, hustled for everything he wanted, everything he yearned for. And in some ways, I wonder if you see yourself in that long line of people hustling for the things they want. Yeah, I definitely do. And I mean, I definitely come from a very different, I was so privileged growing up that I would never have had to go to those lengths to eat. But that hustle feels in my bones. And that I think that that is the thing that like Alana and I, it is that like this over everything. We will make this work somehow in some way. But even when you said the, maybe it all starts with the pie, where he was like, come in here. He sort of brought me in to this joint thing. And when you first started that, it made me think like, I didn't realize that Alana and I were really trying to do that with Broad City. I think it was, it was, it started with just like, this is about us. We're telling a story. And then it shifted to be like, we actually feel like this is about us. The relatability of the stories we were trying to tell started to feel very palpable of like the experience of what it's like to be hustling in New York in your 20s. The relatability of the yearning with that, I keep saying that tome, (laughs) the book, and then everything after and the things that I really like have a hand in, it sort of shifted to be like, I want you to feel like I'm like, come in here. Come on, like, I really want you to feel like we're in it together somehow. And like, it's why I love your show, because at least for me, I'm always looking for something that is like, oh, I feel that way. Or like, I felt that way and they did that. Or fuck, I wish I had known that they felt that way when they were a kid. Or they're, that's my experience in New York. Like, I'm always searching for that. And so now I'm just, that's always at the tip of my tongue is like, just sharing, just like that Harryism of like, come on in here, like, let's do this together. What if we got them together? What if I told this story and you actually really felt like it was yours too? Is always there. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I feel like I've kind of felt like that in this conversation, even though it's your story. I think people listening can identify parts of themselves in it. Do you know it's really crazy, actually? So I've been... I've been thinking a lot about that cross-country trip I took in 2017 because I just did it again. The same trip you did in 2017. I mean, a little bit of a different uh, route. <laughs> I went a little bit north, but I, yeah, I was with my dog. I was with this in the same Mini Cooper that I drove then, but I was with my partner who I'm now engaged to. So it was a very... Wait, wait. N- now who's bearing the lead of this? <laughs> well, it's like... It's very difficult for me to say fiancé because that's such like a specific word. Um, <laughs> Why is it hard? I don't know. It's so, I feel like I have to like start a blog with the, <laughs> <laughs> with the word fiancé. But I thought about that a lot on that trip. I mean, it's wild that I was, I still can't believe I was coming to you <laughs> in L.A. the first time. But I kind of feel like I'm coming to you again right now. Like literally this week, we just landed. And that Mini Cooper broke down halfway through this time. But it, I mean, I was with my best friends now. And yeah, it's nuts. I'm, I'm going to get married to her. So 
It almost sounds like you're asking me to officiate the wedding. Sam. Is this an invitation? This is a audio international <laughs> invitation. <laughs> okay. Hold this is a really good idea now. <laughs> no, no, and it's I'm going to go no. home <laughs> and talk to her about you this. Work, yeah, you workshop that. Okay, let's hold on. Doing this trip again with the woman that's going to become your wife. How did that feel in contrast with the solo 2017 journey? It's so lovely when you unintentionally do a thing again and realize I'm in the same space and then to be in such a different space in your life. I just feel so grounded and like I've come to this whole new sort of appreciation and love of life now that I guess I'm going to just forever keep driving back and forth across the country milestones <laughs> of my life. <laughs> this is maybe a strange question, but was getting married something you always wanted to do? I think it was always something I would do. It's like in this country and in the content you see, it just sort of seems like the thing you do. I mean, when I was a kid, I always thought I would be marrying a man. And then that really like went away. It started to go away more just when I moved to New York and I was like, people live differently and maybe I, my friends in New York and LA sort of get married a little bit later. And it started moving a little bit away from what I thought my future would be. And then it moved farther and farther away, I think. As and you were making Broad City? Kind of, yeah. I just, those personal celebrations and those personal milestones sort of felt like more blurry and not as clear. And I started to sort of feel like maybe that was okay. And I listen, where we are right now, where gay marriage seems to be back on the table as something that might be taken away, I feel really different. I'm going all over the place, but I'm just sort of like... No, but that's the backdrop. That is the backdrop where I just like the union of marriage and like wh where it comes from is something I started to be like, what is this? You're like your property given away and all that. But I think with Jody, I mean, that's not how I feel about it. I feel like it's just, I love a wedding. I love a celebration of love and a, seeing a partnership sort of like take that next step into whatever they want to do together, whatever marriage means to them. And so that's kind of how I feel about it. To be honest, I don't think I ever really thought I would get married. And now I'm very excited to do so. The juxtaposition of the joy you're feeling with the current political climate, it's kind of overwhelming in a way. Yeah. I mean, with Roe, too, being overturned, I think you're it's shocking and also not at the same time where you're like, right, okay, the world is what it is and sort of always has been to a certain extent. And you feel like you're, you know, I'm surrounded by people that feel the same way as I do. And then you're like, wait, but this country is just sort of was built on a lot of the oppositional feelings. So I don't know. I kind of just got to lean into the joy of it. I think we do have to lean into the joy of it because otherwise... It's so profoundly depressing. I saw this quote, this Mary Oliver quote. It was about even if there's a crumb of joy, savor it. Mm -hmm. Even if there is the littlest crumb, like do not waste that crumb. And it's infuriating right now. We could go through the day being fully angry and terrified and infuriated and all of that. 
but there's still a, a lot of crumbs that we have to like hold on to. So let's leave on a crumb then. <laughs> You've dated a fair bit of people in your life, I assume. Thousands. Thousands. <laughs> Gonna be the headline from this podcast. You know what? I was almost said hundreds, and then I was like, "Go for the gold." I'm just what have you found in Jody that you didn't find elsewhere? I think it's ultimately about finding someone who really sees you. So I think we really see each other and want to see each other, and like continually want to hear each other and see each other and know each other in all the ways. I think I found someone who's really excited to do that work to really uncovering who we are. And that's like a journey. I mean, I hope that's always going to be part of the journey because we're both going to change and and everyone does. And I think that that's, I think I found a partner who's in it with me to sort of keep uncovering stuff. And also someone who is always always looking for those crumbs with me. So, I mean, I feel really lucky. Okay. Here's my last question. Okay. Because you sprung this on me. Okay. This was not, this was not planned. This was not in my notes. Who proposed and how? Oh man. Do I want to tell that part? <laughs> is it, why is it bad? No, it's so good. Okay. I'll tell, I'll tell. We were in London and I'd been carrying around, this is so right on the money here, <laughs> what I've talked about myself. I'd been carrying around a little watch ring that I used to wear as a kid. Little plastic ring, but the, it's a teeny little mm-hmm. like watch buckle. For whatever reason, I kept it in my room to remind myself of like, I love that kid that wore that because that's like a rad little kid. And I, I didn't want to get her a ring ring yet. I wasn't sure what, I don't know. I just thought that felt very significant. I carried the ring around the whole time I was in London visiting her. And then knowing that I was gonna, gonna do it one day, I did it. I was so nervous. I'm not going to say exactly how, because I'm going to keep that for us, but I will say I did it and we're both crying and she, (laughs) she goes, you little shit. <laughs> I've been carrying around a fucking ring this whole time, too. She had a real one for me. She didn't give me her, her childhood watch ring. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that, that, I, I was so, I was not expecting that. Like, we both had been thinking about that, wanting to do that the same exact times. Really, really nuts. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Earlier, you mentioned. On making Broad City, or writing this book, or even just having this conversation with me, that you wanted to create an invitation to those watching, to those listening. And even in this story of proposing, you've offered an invitation. And uh, I said thank you for doing that. I will officiate the wedding for free. I was just going to say, the invitation is yours. (laughs) I've so enjoyed this. Thank you for uh, for coming here and sitting with me. Thank you so much. What a full honor. You know how I feel about you. You know how I feel about this podcast. I feel really, it is my joy and my complete pleasure to come on here and get to spill my guts. Abby Jacobson, <laughs> anytime. 
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Lindsay Krug and the team at IDPR. I'd also like to thank Kate Rosenfeld and, of course, Abby Jacobson. You can watch all eight episodes of A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime. To learn more about Abby and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our conversations with Nick Offerman, Jenny Slate, Tessa Thompson, Bill Hader, Lena Dunham, John Early, and Ethan Hawke. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. Uh, It would mean a lot to me and our entire team. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore at York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs this week are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Joyce Carol Oates. Until then, stay safe and so on. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.